VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, folks. As always, we have an amazing show for you today. I'm very excited about it. Um, and those of you who listen on a regular basis know that I'm kind of a a Twitter freak. I'm out there all the time. I love my tweets, my Twitter folks. And um, sometimes the best things happen from Twitter. And this interview is a perfect example of another great success story for Go Green Radio uh, in linking up with folks that we've met on Twitter. Uh, there's a young man named Derek Gordon, and he is interning for a really cool project that we're going to hear about today called Urban Revision. And Derek found me on Twitter, and long story short... Uh, we ended up connecting, and now one of the folks who's working as an as a expert, as an architect on this project, Urban Revision, is joining us today. His name is Eric Corey Freed, and he's based in San Francisco. He has founded more entities than I have fingers to count. Folks, you just have to see his bio. I'm going to be giving you his company website in just a little bit, but it's called Organic Architect. Eric is an amazing person. He's created sustainable structures and designs, everything from large corporate development to single-family units. And he's going to be able to enlighten us on this new project, Urban Revision, but also much, much more. As you know, I always try to bring you the subject matter experts, some of the leading experts in the world on issues of going green. And Eric fits the bill to the nth degree. He's been in green design for 15 years uh, as a green architect and so he's going to be able to tell us what it was like to be green before there was a Nobel Peace Prize for it. It's going to be awesome to talk about um, some of the things he's done as a leader in green architecture, and I'm so pleased to have him on the show. If you are listening and you want to ask any questions, I don't want you to be shy. Eric's a nice guy. I'm a nice gal. I want you to call in and ask questions. The number to call in is 866-472-5788. Now, we're going to get started, and Eric, welcome to Go Green Radio. I'm so glad to have you on today. Oh, thanks, Jill. God, if I had this kind of uh, encouragement growing up, I really could have accomplished much in my life, I think. (laughs) Well, it's never too late, (laughs) and we're so glad to have you on. Now, you have done a lot of media. I, As you know, because I was communicating with you later in the evening last night, I, I did my homework on you, and you have done some really great media interviews, so the challenge for me is to do something a little new, something, ask you some questions hopefully nobody else has, and I love that challenge. Before we get into all the questions that I want to ask you, I want to lay the foundation first. You and I sort of e-met, thanks to an intern that I mentioned earlier, Derek Gordon. He works for Urban Revision. Tell our listeners about this amazing project and how you're involved in it. Urban Revision, um, I, I guess I, I got involved uh, two and a half, three years ago already now. And uh, really, it's the brainchild of, of a woman named Stacy Frost, who um, really, uh, I guess her, her kids were getting of that age, near college age, and, and um, she, she started to look at the world around her and see a lot of problems, as there are, and um, decided to do something about it. So she started this idea of urban revision. Uh, she, was really t- she was really taken by the notion that, that more than half the world's population is now living in cities, which... Uh, significant moment in our human history, and how can we de- define and, and develop sustainable blocks and de- 
uh, sustainable city. And that's really the goal of Urban Revision, and we do it in a number of different ways. Well, tell us about that. I mean, tell us what the, the project has done over time and, uh, and where you're headed. Well, we started with simple competitions. We started with the idea that let's break up, since the city is so big, let's break it up into uh, more digestible parts. So we had a competition called Revolt that's focused on alternative energy solutions. We had a, a competition called Reconnect that focused on reconnecting people together in a community. And each competition was themed to focus on a different aspect or a different problem area of, of a sustainable urban block. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that all of these, I guess you could say smaller competitions, would then culminate into a huge giant competition, which is where we are now, which is Re- Urban Revision Dallas. Uh-huh. And and now, everybody, I want you to not close the web browser that you're listening to the show on because we don't want to lose you. Open a new web browser and go to this website, www.urbanrevision.com, and that way you can kind of follow along with what we're talking about with this with this program. It's truly amazing, um, and you'll see the steps that they've taken. And now the competition that's going on is extremely exciting. Tell us about the competition you guys have started. Well, the idea, the idea all along was to find a real city block in a real city uh, and, and foster this, um, this competition to, to generate innovative ideas and then actually get it built. And um, um, that's what we've done, which is, it's, it sounds weird to say, but uh, a few months ago we, we went to Dallas and met with the mayor, Tom Leppert, and sold him on the idea of it, and he essentially gave us a city block and said, well, here, use this, and developers came on board and and now we've launched a competition to design, to design this um, sustainable city block as sustainable and as innovative as we can mm-hmm. and um, to get it built. And mm-hmm. um, the competition launched in January, and it's open until May, so we've timed it so students could participate. But the competition is really open to everybody. Well, now, Go Green Radio listeners, hang on to this thread really tightly. If there is an, an Inspiring architect in your life. Make sure you listen closely to the next information. Eric, tell us, you know, what's in it for the people who participate? What is the contest? You know, what are the prizes? What do they do? Tell us a little bit more about the meat and potatoes of the contest. Well, uh, not only would they get fame, uh, worldwide (laughs) fame, (laughs) uh, because there's a lot of media involved and a lot of people watching the competition, Uh, but they're... they're, um, their ideas would get built, uh, which is probably the best thing for any aspiring designer. Um, And it would get lived in and used and talked about and studied and scrutinized. And the idea is that this would be a perennial competition, that if we we do our jobs well in Dallas, that we would do it elsewhere in other cities. And then, of course, there's cash involved, um, uh, $25,000, I think, for for three different winners. And, hey, Uh, if you're a college student, that's big cash. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's even, a lot. Even if you're a 40-year-old man, it's big cash, I think. <laughs> yep, that's true. In this economy, that's, that's, a ton of, that's a ton of change. Now, I know that you said that you met with the mayor of Dallas, and actually with the Go Green Initiative, the program that I run, I've done a lot of work in Texas, and they have actually been one of the leading states of all the 50 states you know, that I'm working in with the Go Green Initiative, Texas has actually been one of three leaders. We've had Texas, New York, and California. But even to this day, Texas remains, um, you know, in terms of my program, the Go Green Initiative, the, the ones that are most on fire. They just keep registering new communities and new campuses all the time. But why did you guys 
choose Dallas? I mean, what initially got you there? Well, I think I think our first thoughts were, well, we live in San Francisco, so why wouldn't we do it here? And um, I, I think everybody felt, especially me, felt that if we did it in San Francisco, the rest of the nation could kind of roll their eyes and said, oh, there goes those crazy tree huggers. So I think I had a bit of a reluctance there. And, and, um, and then we had opportunities in, on the East Coast as well, and I thought, well, that would suffer the same fate. Oh, those crazy guys on the East Coast are doing. So I... I I felt very strongly that it should be somewhere kind of in the heartland. Yeah. And um, the opportunity for Dallas came up, and, and I realized Dallas is perfect. It it's, uh, it's, uh, suffers a lot of the same issues that most American cities have and that it had a burgeoning downtown that, that has since been kind of evacuated through suburban flight. And um, this infrastructure there is, is, is interesting and has a lot of potential but isn't being used, and the downtown is essentially dead. Right. And in, and in such a big city, it's odd to go downtown and just see nobody on the streets with all these tall, giant buildings. Mm-hmm. And so, now, uh, so what, what will you create with this one city block? Um, what will it include? Or, or are you just going to wait until the competition's over to answer that question? <laughs> no, I'll answer it now. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> the thinking is that we're not going to solve every problem with a single city block. Mm-hmm. But a city, a city is really uh, made up like a fabric. And if you start punching holes in the fabric or have um, loose threads in the fabric, uh, it really starts to unravel, to overextend the metaphor. Sure. So a single city, a single city block is, is really kind of our primary unit of measure in a city. And a single city block, can, uh, it can't do everything, but what it can do is it can start to be an incubator for other developments. So if, if the designers of the competi- you know, in the competition do their job well, and the judges will certainly be looking for this, if they do their job well, you'll see the potential of, God, if somebody went across the street and built this, it would really take off. Or suddenly now there's the opportunity to put this here, and it starts to be an incubator for so many other ideas. So we can start with a block, but think of it more as a seed. And as we plant this seed, it grows outward and starts to really affect a true community. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Now, Mrs. Johnson, before we close on your mortgage loan, I want to make sure you remember Mike. Hi. You can trust me. I'm African-American, just like you. So here's the low monthly payments and interest rates we promised, and here's where they triple. The rest of this stuff is just here to make sure that we get your house when you can't pay us back. What a lovely house. Predatory lenders are never this easy to spot. Call us at 866-222-FAIR and protect yourself with the facts. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Fair Housing Alliance and the Ad Council. 
Radio by George is a lifestyle program dedicated to improving the lives of listeners by focusing on the holistic growth of their mind, body, and spirit. Host Eddie George shares his life experiences as well as the experiences of his guest commentators and experts with the listening audience to focus them toward reaching their personal and professional goals. Tune in every Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. PST, 4 p.m. EST to Radio by George on the Voice America channel and learn more from the life experiences of a man who went from being a somewhat unruly kid in the streets of Philadelphia to a retired professional athlete who has become a role model for not only young people but for businessmen and women globally. Plan to spend your Monday afternoons with Eddie George and his empowering talk radio show, Radio by George. That's every Monday at 1 p.m. PST right here on the Voice America channel. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh! Uh. There you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Glad to have you with us today. We have Eric Corey Freed, one of the nation's leading green architects, and we're talking about an amazing project called Urban Revision. Don't close this particular web browser that you've got open while you're listening to the show. But if you want to follow along, open a new window and go to www.urbanrevision.com. This is a great project. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, Eric. We're so glad to have you. Oh, thank you. Happy to be here. Well, you know, I want to ask you a question. This project is called Urban Revision, but just out of curiosity, why not rural revision or suburban revision, or is that just coming in the future? Uh, country country revision, things like that. Yeah. Um, well, it, we're quite we're quite uh, adamant about focusing on the urban environment. Um, urban urban environments are inherently more sustainable because we've got um, more density, more infrastructure more opportunities for interconnection, more opportunities for community. Uh, the suburbs, especially American suburbs, have been a bit of a failed experiment, if you think about it. A lot of our environmental issues and a lot of our economic issues can be tied to the, the failed experiment of suburbia and this idea of living it further and further away from, from economic centers and, and the toll it takes on driving and on community and on infrastructure. So... Um, Maybe in a way, suburban revision would be um, could be done as a tongue in cheek to to find ways to fix suburbia. But but we feel that with um, with us passing this momentous mark in history, where 
more than half of the, of the world's population now lives in urban centers, and that number keeps increasing. And that's never occurred before. It shows us moving towards, really, a globalized society and an urban society at that. Mm-hmm. So now's the time to take the urban centers and fix them and take the existing infrastructure that has probably been abused for the last 50 years and, and fix it and make places like downtown Dallas livable and wonderful and great places to be again. Well, and of course, that's going to have to be a holistic approach that every urban area, you know, embraces because it's not just the sustainable buildings. Of course, it's the quality of schools and, uh, you know, education. That's what draws people. There's so many things that draw people to an urban area. In fact, I do a lot of work in China, and I'm working with one environmental educator over there who works in like tier three cities outside of Shanghai, and, and these are very rural areas. And she's from a small small country in Europe, and she tells the people that she works with in China that she comes from a country where the entire population is 2 million people. And they laugh and they ask, did you all live in the same hotel? <laughs> and so uh, I think when you look at a global population you know, scan, much of what we're seeing in terms of, of urban uh, development is, is in the, the Asia and emerging, you know, economies. So it's, it is a pretty exciting time to see what will happen with urban development. Now, on this project, Urban Revision, you must have some partners. Um, every good project has a team and a lot of partners. Who are they in this particular project, and how are they interfacing with each other? Well, we've got three major partners, and then there's a lot of smaller ones. But the three major ones are first... Um, the mayor's office in Dallas, which has been incredible, and we couldn't do the project without them, quite frankly. Uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't undertake a, something of this scale without, without having the support of the mayor and the community. Mm-hmm. Secondly is the uh, Central Dallas Community Housing Development Organization called the Central Dallas CDC, and uh, they're essentially acting as the developer on this project. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then lastly, we have the BC Workshop, which is uh, uh, founded by an architect named Brent Brown, um, which has this—he has this amazing practice, and he makes me feel guilty every time I talk to him. Uh, <laughs> awesome. Where they, they essentially provide um, architectural services to those in need all around all around the community, and do these really noble, stoic, wonderful, wonderful things. It makes me feel quite selfish designing houses for you know relatively rich people. Wow, that sounds great. I mean, that sounds like a really good group. How did they all assemble? I mean, do you all have face-to-face meetings or? Do you uh, do you conference call? How are you working together? How often do you all put your heads together? Well, we do conference calls fairly often, uh, and that, they're kind of easy. Um, and then, of course, four million emails going back and forth every week. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, we get to meet in person every now and again. Um, in um, I think it was December, we had a we had a community charrette uh, in Dallas, and we brought together leaders from all different departments. Uh, throughout City Hall, and um, and then architectural leaders in the community mm-hmm. walked them in, walked them in a room and fed them and, and said, "Let's <laughs> develop the parameters for this competition. Let's develop what you'd like to see come out of this competition." Right, right. And and it was incredibly effective. And what what I discovered is a problem that's inherent to, I would say, most communities, which is that you have the guy that's in charge of public transit that runs that whole department and knows all the things that are coming up and knows all the potential issues and knows all the potential projects that he's got funding for. And then sitting right next to him is the guy that runs the streets department, and the two of them never talk. They only know each other's name from a, a call sheet that sits by their desk, but they've never actually met in the same room. 
Right. When you start to lock those people, those decision makers and stakeholders in the same room, these amazing opportunities come out. So, for example, in the Charette, we discovered that there was a, a sunken freeway right along our site, and this freeway was essentially acting as a, a river. It might as well have been a river of molten lava because what we found is that pedestrians would not walk across it. Oh. So it just became clear once you started getting all these people in the room that what we need to do is just cover over the freeway, just literally build land right over it so people can walk on top of it. And now, in addition to our project, Dallas has underway this idea for this covering over the freeway, and they're essentially putting a park on top of the freeway and erasing the mistake of, of the sunken freeway driving through the community. Wow. That's pretty amazing. And, and you know, it's just a simple, like, really, really old-fashioned thing, talking to each other. I can remember, um, you know, there were there have been times since the Brown Act was put into effect, um, you know, a lot of folks have had a difficult time um, conducting public policy meetings the way that it was done back in the old days. And I know that there are good reasons for the Brown Act, you know, the, the corrupt things that happened before uh, public officials, you know, had to notify the public before they were meeting. But sometimes everybody getting together around a coffee table or around lunch really can be helpful. And I think some of the communication that used to take place when we were solving community problems um, are a bit more difficult now. So it's really great to be able to, in a legitimate and legal way, get everybody together. Now, I'm going to send the podcast of this show to one of my former interns that worked for me over the summer. She's a student at USC in urban planning, and she wrote a tremendous white paper for me this summer that um, really blew my mind and, and was pretty fantastic. And I think she would be awesome for this competition. But how are you all reaching out to potential competitors? What's your outreach strategy? The outreach is fairly extensive. Uh, in addition to the Urban Revision website, which gets a lot of hits, but still exists as a website somewhere, we've sent out um, comp- we've sent out competition details to every school of architecture, every school of industrial design, and, every- and I think pretty much every school of interior design to make sure that we get students represented. Uh, we also have a uh, kind of a very um, star-studded <laughs> uh, filled jury of. Um, of jurors that are going to be judging the, the competition, and hopefully that will attract more entries. And then we've, we've issued select invitations to larger firms, um, asking them specifically to participate and working with them to help them uh, help them make sure that they get their entries in on time. Who are some of these star judges? Oh, uh, well, we've got um, Cameron Sinclair, founder of Architecture for Humanity, which... Uh, is again one of those people that you know, you start to feel guilty that you're not doing enough with your life when you start talking to him. Cameron Cameron's uh, put out a book called Design Like You Give a Damn, mm. and uh, <laughs> which is a fantastic book, by the way. Mm-hmm. And his group, Architecture for Humanity, uh, provides architectural services for people that really need it all over the world. And it's not free architectural services. Uh, it's not just charity. It's the idea that you help them out and following kind of the teach them to fish model. So they do projects in uh, New Orleans. They do projects in the Philippines. They do projects everywhere. Wow. That's cool. And uh, who else? We have uh, Peter Head, who's um, one of the design principals of Arup, which is the premier leading um, engineering and design firm in the, in the world. We have uh, Plenty Fisk, uh, who's, who was one of my mentors. Uh, and for the last 40 years, he's, he's kind of, essentially been the green sustainable architect. 
Mm-hmm. He's, got a, he's got a group called the Center for Maximum Built Potential, and, and he's devoted his life to exploring how to make buildings operate better and operate more like nature and, and truly be completely sustainable. And then lastly, we have Sergio Palleroni, uh, who used to teach at University of Texas in Austin and now uh, teaches in Portland, and he's director of what's called the Basic Initiative, which teaches architecture and sustainable design um, and and goes into the community and solves problems the way they need to. And uh, Sergio and Cameron are, are kind of two of my favorite people. Um, so I just love getting in the room with them and, and, and um, bouncing ideas around. But they're all incredible. They're all incredible, brilliant. Sounds like, you know, if you were sort of a, a student or an up-and-comer um, in the industry, just to get your work in front of these judges is an amazing opportunity in and of itself. Um, how, I'm curious, because... Sometimes I talk to guests on Go Green Radio, and their ideas sound so, like, such no-brainers. Like, there's a huge duh factor. Like, well, yeah, why wouldn't we do this? But then I'm surprised to find that sometimes there are actually naysayers to what they're doing. How about urban revision? How has it been received in the architectural world? Is everybody, you know, embracing it, singing Kumbaya? Or are there holdouts who are skeptical of opening up design and architectural issues to novices? The funny thing about, um, I guess, any movement, and, in, and I think of environmentalism as a movement, not as a fad, but as something that we need to move towards. The issue with any movement is that you're always going to get resistance, and, and very often the greatest resistance comes right from your own peers and your own friends, mm-hmm. in part because they're, they're, I guess, looking to protect you and make sure you don't get hurt, but in part I think it's their own, their own fears and doubts that are creeping up on them the easiest thing that we could do would be to stay on this inevitable path towards destruction. The easiest thing that we could do would be just keep consuming six times the amount of every other country in the world and, and use up everything and, and have constant wars over oil and over water and over resources. Mm-hmm. That's actually the easiest thing that we could do. It's very hard to redesign the world, and it's very hard to change everything. Well, and we're going to talk more about that because you're doing it, my friend. And, uh, folks, don't go away. We'll have more with Eric Freed. After these commercial breaks, stay tuned for more Go Green Radio. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. 
Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Sylvana alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. We are having a blast today. So if you're just joining us, roll up your sleeves and get ready to punch some uh, websites into your web browser. Don't close this one. Stay with us on Go Green Radio. But I want you to open another window and go to this website, www.urbanrevision.com. We've been talking with Eric Freed. He's a leading green architect based in San Francisco, and he's been telling us about this project. Now, we're going to be moving on and talking about him. We're going to get personal. We're going to find out what's going on between his ears because he's a real leader in green design. But uh, after the show, I want you to check out Urban Revision. It's really great. Now, open one more window, folks, and go to Eric's website. His company is called Organic Architect, and the website for that is simply www.organicarchitect.com. And we're going to go through that, and we're going to talk with Eric about what he does and how he's leading the way in green design in the 21st century. Eric, welcome back to Go Green Radio. We are so glad to have you with us. Oh, thank you. Well, let's talk about your career as a green architect, Eric. When did you first realize that you were a green architect? What was the moment that you first embraced that mission? <laughs> you, you make it sound like it's a, like a switch. Like before that, I was a toxic architect, and suddenly I decided, you know what, I'm <laughs> set up with that, I'm going to switch. Uh, I, uh, I didn't um, realize it. I, I, my approach to sustainability is, a, it's, that, is that it's, it's very logical, and the way that we've been building our buildings is illogical. You know, it's, it kind of doesn't make sense to fill a building with toxic finishes. It doesn't make sense to use a resource till it's exhausted. And, and I really come from that approach, and even my mentors that I sought out over the years shared that, shared that idea with me. So even back in high school, uh, when I was drawing up my little buildings and not really knowing what I'm doing just for fun, they were buildings that, that responded to light and to wind. And then when I got into college, I started doing these green buildings. But we didn't call them that back then. We called them passive solar buildings or resource-efficient buildings. There wasn't, you know, this is the 80s. There was no movement (laughs) like there is now. So was this something that, you know, kind of carried through from something in your childhood? What made you, uh, you know, I I guess the the thought process behind this is so interesting to me um, because I find when I interview people on Go Green Radio, there are so many different paths that lead different leaders in different industries to a green path. For you, it sounds like it was just innate, but can you point to anything in your background that helped you recognize, you know, the, the beauty of nature and, and wanted to, you know, conserve natural resources? Was there somebody that inspired you or some 
you know, what what was it? Well, there were there were hundreds of people that inspired me, but uh, there were two there were two distinct things that occurred. First thing was when I was ten, um, I was I saw my first Frank Lloyd Wright building, and it was um, there's only one in Philadelphia where I grew up, and I just happened to go to it, and it was the first time that I saw that a building could be beautiful and and a building could grow out of the site and and you know really just be impressive, and I spent the whole time just staring up at it. And my mother, you know, my mother saying, pay attention, you know, and <laughs> I <just laughs> kept looking up at it, and, and I was in awe, and, and I asked, well, who did, who did this? And they very proudly said, Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, obviously. Uh-huh. Uh, and from that moment on, I was hooked. I went to the library, and um, back then, that's what we did. We went to the libraries and took out books, so I took out books on on him, and, and that was at age 10. And, and what's unusual about that story is that it's not unusual in that, I've I've met hundreds of, of other architects that have very very similar stories with their experience with with uh, Mr. Wright and how it changed their perspective. It made me realize at a very young age that I was not at all interested in doing what other people have seen before. Mm-hmm. I looked around. I looked around. I, I grew up in what's called a row house. It was a simple, stupid box that was covered with fake brick and fake shutters, and and none of it was real. And and I thought, well, I could design that now at, at age ten. I want to do something that I've never done before. I want to do things that make people excited. That's cool. That's really cool. And you're still doing it now because you're getting people excited on a, on a huge scale. I mean, it's just it's just great to talk with you, Eric. And I was looking all through your company's website. And again, folks, that's www.organicarchitect.com. And you say right up front on your website that you believe that ultimately the term green architect will be redundant because all architects will be building sustainable structures. It's just inevitable. And if that's true, then you're really on the leading cusp of this as one of the first, you know, quote-unquote green architects. And so you hold a natural leadership role. Tell us about some of the things you're doing outside of the project Urban Revision that we've already talked about. What are some of the things you're doing to help ensure that what you say will indeed come to fruition, that the term green architect will become redundant? Well, when I, when I started my firm in 1997, um, I think I did what most architects do, you know, especially young architects. I kind of puttered around and struggled with the idea of how do I get clients and, and how do I get things built and and I very quickly realized that to truly be a green architect, to truly be committed to this, it couldn't just be the buildings that I designed, but it had to be every building. And that ultimately, somehow, our, my goal had to be to make every building a green building. It seemed that to be a green architect, we can't call it green architecture anymore because that implies that the other architecture, traditional architecture, whatever you want to call it, is really the toxic architecture, mm-hmm. it's really the, the bad architecture. And then how can you exist with this better alternative and not fight to get rid of the bad stuff. So that's, right around that time, I guess for about 2000 or so, 2001, I realized that I couldn't just be a normal architect anymore, that I had to do these other things. And that was really, that was really the dramatic shift. That's when I made a conscientious effort to, to change our approach. I started, so you teach. I, teach. I mean, I know that you are, a, are an instructor, and so right. you're, you're helping to teach, you know, folks who are going to be professionals in this field, but you also speak at conferences and, and whatnot. What do you do to reach out to your brothers and sisters in the architectural world? Well, I, I started teaching, and um, I, you know, approached UC Berkeley and Academy of Art and said, I want to teach, and they said, well, you want to teach history? And I said, no, I want to teach, <laughs> I want to teach sustainable design. 
and they uh, they were very open to it, and they helped me develop programs. Um, it was started with one class, and eventually led to full certificate programs in sustainability. And we've now had since 2002 hundreds of students go through go through this program, which mm-hmm. will then they'll go and and they'll make every building that they do a green building. I speak at 40 conferences a year all over the country, which is both um, exhilarating and depressing at the same time. <laughs> How is it depressing? <laughs> it's depressing because you spend a lot of time in airports seeing seeing the worst of America, mm-hmm. and you and you spend a lot of time in really anonymous, awful hotels, and you you go to you go to cities and you see. And I didn't expect this, but you you see the same issues and the same problems and the same concerns across the United States, and that we're really all in the same boat. And it really gives me that sense of it. When I go to Minneapolis or I go to I go to Dallas, and you see that they're all struggling with the same issues, and that really there's a there's probably a strength in numbers that if we were just to kind of get together and share notes, <laughs> that we could start to really help each other. Mm-hmm. Well, I, and you know I travel quite a bit myself, and I I know what you mean in terms of um, you know I always say. There's nothing new under the sun. I mean, when I am talking, you know, next week I'll be talking in D.C. and then in Pennsylvania. And, you know, there are local issues um, and, and geographical differences, of course, and different environmental issues in different climates. But um, we are sort of struggling with a lot of the same issues, and especially when it comes to architecture. I mean, don't you think that part of that is because you know, the architects who've been designing these things were brought up under similar schools of thinking, how do we change that thinking? We had a, we have now more than an entire generation of architects that have forgotten how to build buildings appropriately. For some reason, for the, in the last fifty years, with the post-war boom, and then the boom through the sixties, and then and now this oil embargo, we've we've somehow painted ourselves into a corner where we design a house and then we put it the same place all over the country, and the house doesn't change. So whether we put it in Arizona or whether we put it in Alaska, the house remains the same, and that fundamentally is an issue. The design of the house should change. It should be like in nature. It should be like what Mr. Wright says, and the house would respond to the environment and change and adapt and, and grow accordingly. Mm-hmm. So you almost need to have architects embrace the locale, not just the the principles of design, but the locale in which they'll be working. I mean, you know, and that makes sense, Eric. That makes perfect sense because, for instance, lawyers, okay, they may go to law school in Illinois, but if they're going to practice in California, they have to pass the California bar exam um, so that they acclimate the practice to the state's laws. So it makes perfect sense that, you know, the architectural industry wouldn't do the same. I want to shift gears for just a second because, you know, we've been talking a lot on Go Green Radio and everybody else has been talking about this concept of green jobs. And everybody's, you know, got a different definition of it. We hear that the green jobs of the future will be domestic, they'll pay well, they'll be good for the environment. How do you define green jobs, Eric? (laughs) You've got one, by the way, but how do you define, you know, what it means to everyday Americans? Well, I have a lot to say on this subject, I think. Um, I, I first heard the term, I guess, about four or five years ago when I met Van Jones. Oh, yeah. Who, who um, in addition to being one of the most handsome men, I think, in sustainability, <laughs> very, very disarmingly charming, uh, you know, he's, his, his passion is, is infectious. And, and he, and I, I think I'm speaking for him, and hopefully I'm, I'm doing him justice, but I, I think he sees green, green-collar jobs as a bit of a social rights issue and a social equity issue in that your choice is coming out of 
coming out of a, um, a low-income neighborhood shouldn't be whether you try to get a white-collar job or a blue-collar job, but you get a green-collar job that is not only teaching your skill but also boosting up your community and helping the world at the same time. Uh, but ultimately, I think that every job is going to be somewhat of a green-collar job, the same way that every job right now is a bit of a techno- technological job and that we all have to interface with technology in a certain way. All That's of us. a great analogy. That's a great analogy. I mean, what job at this point doesn't use a computer or a copy machine or some kind of device? Uh, what kind of job in the future won't have to manage the natural resources it affects? That's a really great analogy. And that, that seamless ubiquity of technology being woven into everything that we do, from, from a policeman dealing you know, with the, the computer that they might have in their dashboard to the cable guy that uses a computer to kind of program the order in, or even the person at McDonald's that's, that's kind of getting you your fries. We're, we're dealing with technology on a seamless level, and we don't even think about it anymore. I think so, too. We're going to be interfacing and, and questioning and acknowledging our environmental footprint and doing it on a seamless level. In fact, we'll be doing things that we'll forget why we do them. We just do them because, ultimately, we need to through regulation to protect our planet. Well, that's a great way to put it, and I think you know that's something that um, frames the discussion in a completely different way. That potentially every job could be a green job if we if we look at environmental footprints of what we do every day in the workplace. We're going to be back with one more segment with Eric Freed. So, folks, don't go away. We'll have more Go Green Radio right after these commercial breaks. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tolvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information, about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Hi, my name is Aaron, and I'm a survivor of mannequinism. Mannequinism is basically when you turn into a hard plastic shell. They say it's from not being politically active. For me, it started when I didn't register to vote, and then I stopped volunteering, and before I knew it, I wasn't doing anything. And that's when I found a small patch of plastic on my right shoulder. Protect yourself from mannequinism. Log on to fightmannequinism.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Do you know what the most complex piece of your business capital investment is? Is it the technology? Is it the infrastructure? Could it be the office and corporate structure? The most complex piece of your business capital investment is the human being. Return on Human Capital is a unique program that discusses some of the most important issues facing leaders in business. Join your hosts, Howard Pines and Jay Santamaria, for Return on Human Capital, Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. 
VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back, folks, to Go Green Radio. Once again, your Dean of Green is bringing you an awesome guest, and I am so excited to have Eric Corey Freed on our show today. He's been talking to us about some amazing topics that deal with green design and green architecture. You know, when it comes right down to it, this is where the rubber meets the road with our sustainable future and everything that we can hope for is that new buildings and new structures where According to the EPA, we spend 90% of our time indoors is going to be sustainable or not. And Eric is really leading the way um, with what he is doing, both with the Urban Revision Project and with his own design firm, which is called Organic Architect. You can see his website at organicarchitect.com. Eric, thanks again for being on Go Green Radio. Oh, thank you. You know, we were talking about, before the break, we were talking about green jobs. And I love the point you made that, hey, realistically, every job is going to be a green job when sustainability is woven into everything that we do. I think that's a perfect point. Now, in your industry, do you foresee a time when architects will measure, at least to some degree, their success on a project by measuring how many green jobs that they create with their design? I mean, will that become a statistic that architects can quantify and use as a competitive edge? Or on the flip side, do you think that might be a metric that should be imposed um, as a regulation on the architectural industry. What do you think about that? Well, I think I'm, I'm always reluctant to the idea of regulations, but, um, but I, I feel like we've gotten to a point where we almost can't do them without government intervention. There are things that, that I'm finding that unless we make rules, we, we can't wait any longer. The idea that we're just going to wait for consumer demand to get to such a fever pitch that, that, that people are just going to willingly do this is rare and doesn't really happen in our history. What we need to do is um, kind of look at past examples where it's been effective. So, for example, here in California, we have an energy code called Title 24. And what's interesting about it is that ultimately it makes every building somewhat of a green building. It makes every building somewhat energy efficient and somewhat water efficient. So, for example, every toilet that we put in in California is a low-flush toilet. Right. But, but you can cross the border into Oregon and you can find that here where we have a 1.6-gallon-per-flush toilet, in Oregon, they have a five-gallon per flush toilet, and and the idea of flushing five gallons of fresh drinking water down the drain every time you go pee-pee just seems a little kooky to me. <laughs> well, and and that's all true, but when we're talking about you know creating green jobs, if we're really committed to it, how do we if, if we can put in rules and regulations about how much water you know goes down the drain when we flush? Can we put in rules about how many green jobs are created and really you know boost this part of the economy that we're all talking about. Well, I think what you do is you need to make green jobs attractive to people the same way that we flock to technology-based jobs because that's where the opportunities were. We need to have, instead of just the idea of this mandate of saying we need to make 100,000 green jobs, what we should do is make a mandate that, that gives tax credits to um, solar industries, wind power, alternative energy sources, to any carbon reduction or carbon sequestration technologies. We need to 
pave the way for those businesses to flourish, and that's how you make jobs uh, and, and really make them appealing to people as well. Well, that that's perfect in my you know I, I love tax incentives for great behavior, um, and I think that that is a perfect role of government to create um, incentives for businesses and for individuals who do the right thing. I think that that's fantastic, and I, I love that approach, and I think that's a great marriage of free market, you know, creating incentives that are attractive to folks, and government creating the environment in which businesses who are doing the right thing get rewarded and and can can continue to function and create more people, you know, more jobs for folks. Now, I went through a lot of the interviews and published writings that you have um, while I was prepping for this interview, and I was really excited about some of the things you said. In one interview in November 2006, you said that architects should take responsibility for the buildings they create. And, and that jibes with a guest that we had just a couple of weeks ago. His name is Peter Yost. And he was talking about the durability of buildings being part of the new LEED standards coming out of the U.S. Green Building Council for homes. Um, what's your view on durability as it relates to sustainable design? Should that be a part of all the LEED standards or um, just, just homes? Well, the lead standards, if you, re- you know, although lead has been wildly successful in certain areas, it's, you know, it's the de facto industry standard for, for the rating of a green building. The, the reality is that lead buildings still only account for a small percentage of what's being built, especially in, especially in housing. Um, so we should make it part of lead. In fact, we should do a lot of other things to lead to change it, such as acknowledging um, the entire life cycle of the materials, not just, dur- not just durability, but, but everything before and after. Um, but I think I think instead, you know, for some reason we've we've had this clash of our consumerist culture that wants to buy new things every few years and replace things all the time rather than fixing them. We we almost need to change a little bit of that before we can start to make buildings that are durable. You know, we used to make buildings that lasted a hundred years, and now we make buildings that really only last about ten. And, and that's ridiculous. I mean, and and it doesn't matter where you fall on the political spectrum, that is ludicrous to, to create. There's so much waste involved in construction and, and you know, there's, I, I have seen unbelievable amounts of construction debris go to landfills and to think that it would be all right to design buildings that aren't made to last for several generations is obscene, don't you think? We send, uh, we send over three, three, three million tons of, of construction waste to landfills every year. And most of it, 85% of it at least, is recyclable. So all these potentially valuable resources that we're just kind of... Well, and it with. just begs the question, you know, why, why we wouldn't include durability. I mean, if, and I agree with you completely, Eric. I mean, architects should absolutely take responsibility for their designs. And part of that really ought to be, you know, let's keep the building up and going for 200 years and not creating waste that goes to landfill with construction and demolition. I, I completely agree with that, and I think that somehow that needs that, that attitude, and as much as we're talking about energy efficiency and bamboo floors, that idea of the building needs to last, folks, ought to be an industry standard. I really, I really think there's no question about that. If we're really going to be sustainable, that includes not building so many buildings because our buildings last, you know? Now, I've got to ask you a personal question because I noticed on your website that your wife is on your company team, and I think that is fabulous. I know that 
in my work with the Go Green Initiative, my husband and my three kids have been intimately involved. Eric, how does the concept of family and fatherhood affect your work? Do you view your work any differently now than you did before you were a dad, or has it really just, you know, reinforced what you already did? <laughs> I, uh, um, well, in a certain sense, I think I, I've been working less. Uh, <laughs> the last, we have a, we have an eight-and-a-half-month-old, and, and um, in the last eight-and-a-half months, I, I probably haven't put in nearly as many hours as I should. Uh, just because I, I want to run home and spend time with her before she goes to bed every night. Um, yeah. But I, I, it didn't. It didn't. I think because of the nature of my work, it wasn't like I woke up and said, "I need to do something that helps the planet from now on." I, I was, you know, I've kind of always been interested in that, and frankly, I think it's the responsibility of all of us to to do that. Um, I agree with but you. I, but I have been, um, I have been realizing that as she's starting to crawl and then walk and talk, that. Um, you know that, I, that that I'm going to be shaping a lot of her values, and and I've already kind of started a, a covert operation. Don't tell my wife, but I've started a <laughs> covert covert operation to uh, to really instill in her the idea of being a true a true hardcore environmentalist. You know? I love it. I love it, and that's. I think that so many, you know, parents today are seeing their their natural love and concern for their children, um, and, and environmental protection is just one more way that we're able to show that we're concerned about our children's future, that we love them, and we want them to have a healthy, prosperous future. Eric, there were about a million more questions I wanted to ask you today, so we're going to have to have you back on, but thank you for being with us on Go Green Radio. Folks, we'll be back here next week, same time, same place with more Go Green Radio. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.